everyone. Welcome to the Sally Allen podcast. Uh, this podcast is a platform for people to share their stories of resilience. And today I'm really excited. I have my friend Re Lisa Remelo on, on the show. Um, Lisa is an author and she's ran her own restaurant for 27 years. Lisa's book is A Kindness I Will Never Forget. I first met Lisa at a conference called What's Your Story? It was in H at Huntington Beach, and we both share our stories there. And um, boy, was I blown away by her story and her resilience. And that's what she'll be sharing with us today. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Sally. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited you're here. So what, you know, I know you're sharing your story with us today. So take it away. Okay, thank you. Um, so so long ago, but you never forget these things that um, took place. I haven't. And I was 33 and had a two-year-old little boy and a newborn baby girl. And I've been with my husband 11 years overall. We've been married six, I think. So I went out to lunch with my sister and came back and opened my front door. And I could see my husband lying on the kitchen floor. And the first thing that ran through my head was, I just said, Walt's on the floor. His name was Walt. And <clears throat> I ran towards him and grabbed the phone at the same time to call 911. And I, I was just convinced he just needed a little oxygen and he would be okay. So I, I gave the information to 911 and my sister was with me and she also had a baby six months old. So she was taking care of my baby and her baby and trying to get my son to come over and stay out of the kitchen where my husband was because he had a fantastic relationship with his father. And so he was walking all around the, the floor saying, you know, why is daddy asleep on the floor? Wake up, daddy, wake up, silly daddy. And there was just no way to explain that kind of thing to a two and a half year old. Mm -hmm. So the, um, for, I guess they're called first responders now, <laughs> paramedics back then. They came in, it was a lot of men and they were just automatically doing things to him. You know, they um, cut up the arm of his jacket. It was January 3rd, 1991. So he was wearing a jacket, it was a little chilly to put some kind of IV in him and they were pumping his chest and, um, you know, trying to give him CPR. And I was incredibly frantic. Um, the feeling in my body, I just wish like this shaking that I couldn't control. But I also maintained some semblance of what might happen or what could happen. And I thought they're probably gonna take me to a hospital. So my daughter was three months old. I had never given her a bottle because I was nursing. And I thought, if I have to go somewhere and be gone a while, what am I gonna do? So while they were working on him, I picked up my baby pulled up my shirt in front of all these men and was nursing my baby in my kitchen <laughs> and saying, is he going to live? Is he all right? You know, which but I sounded like a crazy lady, but um, I, I, I kind of knew I needed to do that. And one man looked up at me and he said, um, it, it doesn't look good, man. And that's when I knew that it really might not work out, that he might die. And I never forgot that man because I actually appreciated that he told me that. And that's why the name of my book, A Kindness I Will Never Forget. I never forgot what that man did for me because he 
put the idea in my head that I might need to start my thinking in another direction. So they took him to the hospital and I don't even know how I got there or if I went, that part of my memory is gone. And it was a small hospital nearby, a little local one. And I was pacing the waiting room and I had these little pictures in my wallet of my kids. Because back then, um, this was 1991, you would go to Sears or JCPenney and have photos made every year and they give you the standard wallet size photo. I took the photos out and I was just holding them on my heart and, and pacing this little room. Don't, please let them live, please let them live, please let them live. And then I saw a doctor and nurse approach me and she had a box of Kleenex in her hand and I, I just knew. I mean, mm -hmm. and they said the standard thing you hear, um, you know, there's nothing we could do. And all that. So they asked if I wanted to see him and I did. And I had never been around anyone who had died before. Mm -hmm. I, I just to be frank, a dead body. I'd seen one at a funeral way up in the front and I always thought that would terrify me, but it was weird. He didn't terrify me at all because he was my Walt. He was my husband. Um, as they say in today's day, my person. Mm -hmm. So I went in and, you know, his eyes were closed and he was still warm. So he felt real. And I just kept running my hand through his hair. I put the pictures on his chest and I was crying, but it was a different kind of crying. It wasn't a, it was just like water running out of my face. It, and my main thing I just kept telling him was, I'll, I'll take care of our kids. I, I'll, I'll do everything you wanted. Because sometimes he and I differed. I was too overly motherly and he was more into letting them learn what they needed to. Mm -hmm. And um, I just promised him that I would do everything that I knew was important to him. And I wanted to look at his eyes one last time. I have brown eyes and he has huge blue eyes. Both my kids have these huge blue eyes. <laughs> So I opened his eyes and that's when it just really hit me because they're, they're completely vacant, you know, and I just closed them right away. And I thought, and he, I just felt like he's not in there anymore. And the nurse came over and, and they were kind of saying that I was taking too long because it was hard to leave him. And they kept saying, um, we need you to give us the name of your mortuary. And I just said, I'm 33, I don't have a mortuary. <laughs> Yeah. So they took out a phone book. There's a phone book back then, and it was on a computer and called the mortuary. And I remember a man driving me home, and it just seemed to take forever, even though I was very nearby. And I walked in and I looked at my sister. She already knew. She already knew. And my little boy ran up, two and a half. Mommy, where's daddy? And I had told him when the men were working on him, daddy's broken, they're gonna fix him. And he said, you know, where's daddy? Did they fix daddy? And I, I, I took him aside and knelt down and said, honey, they, they couldn't fix daddy. He had to go, has to go to a place called heaven. And, and I really had no concept of heaven. I'm not a religious person, I'm spiritual, but I never, you know, followed a specific religion. Um, and then I, I ended up, I had to start making a lot of phone calls because there's so many people you need to call and let them know. And there were no cell phones back then. So it wasn't like you could text people or anything. And I don't know what the first thing I did was call his boss because I knew he was working on a very important project. He worked at Rockwell International on the space shuttle program. And I 
he had, I, he had taken that day off, which is very rare. My husband almost never took days off because we were getting my daughter, our daughter baptized on Sunday and he was setting some stuff up for that. But anyway, I called his boss and told him uh, Walt had a heart attack and he died. I can hardly say the word died. It's, yeah. It just sounds very final. And he, the man could barely talk and then thanked me. And then I had to make other calls. I had to, mm. he had three grown daughters from his previous marriage before I met him. Yeah. Lisa, and before had, you go into those calls, yeah. I want to, I want to go back and ask you a question. Um, sure. How, I know you said I've had a lot of people on my show that are, as you say, religious and they find their faith through God and they go through that. Everything I've heard so far, you've been pretty level-headed. You know, you said you're flustered, but you knew you needed to feed your baby. I don't know if I could even think about that if I'm watching my husband on the floor. You just went to the hospital you, and opening his eyes, that was brave. I wouldn't, I don't know that I could do that. But you also knew you came home and you needed to make those phone calls. And, and it seems like your head was clear and you knew exactly what you needed to do. What drove you? What do you think gave you the strength to do all of that? Thank you. That's a good question, Sally. Uh, I think being a mother really was my overall strength because nothing was important to me as protecting my kids. That's what motivated me to feed my daughter and take care of my son. And I knew I needed people to come help me because that would help me with my kids. I'm not really sure. Um, looking back, it was probably some kind of divine intervention, <laughs> some kind of spiritual. I've, I've grown very much in the sort of spirituality since then. Yeah. And um, thank you for asking that. And you're at Everything. the phone calls, the phone calls. Oh, okay. So I, I had to make a lot of calls and they were hard. I could go into so many of them, but, um, but in the way I told my story in my book was to go back in time. And I will do that for a little bit, just to give a small background of things. My husband was 22 years older than me. He died when he was 55 and I was 33. I knew he would die before me one day, but as a young woman in my twenties, early thirties, I thought, oh, He'll make it like, you know, 80 and I'll be 60 and who cares, you know, kind of, <laughs> I mean, not, not who cares, but that it would be okay, sort of. Yeah. I didn't think he would die when we had a newborn two-year-old. And it, so because I had a very strict family, they were not supportive of my marriage. My parents did not come to my wedding. They wrote me out of their will, which I did not even care about. And over the years since we had the kids, my mother had come around. She didn't like my husband, didn't really want to get to know him, but she wanted to see her grandchildren and she still loved me. My father was just a very stubborn man. And although I had run into him in the last five years prior to my husband dying, we didn't really uh, talk much and we had been very close, but he was angry at me because I had gone against his will, even though I was a grown-up woman. So one of the last calls I made was to my parents' house, and I did not want to make that call because mm -hmm. I thought I was going to hear a lot of I told you so's, blah, blah, blah. Because one point my father had said before I got married, what happens if you have kids with him and he dies one day? Mm -hmm. And so I called their house. My mother's 
friend was over and answered and I told her. And she said, I'll bring your mother over. My mother came over and was so incredibly frantic because she was so sad for me. She was driving me crazy, but not me any too. She's trying to help. So more and more people started coming to my house and my son had gotten up from his nap and he was thrilled with all these people. And he couldn't even remember what I had told him that daddy's not here. It just went right in and out of his head. And I don't remember very much of that night, but a dear friend came over and her husband owned a Mexican restaurant. She brought trays and trays of food. And I remember her sitting next to me and I was like a two-year-old. So I had gone Sally from being in charge to being like an infant again, mm. because she kept telling me, eat one more bite. You're nursing Hannah, you need to eat. Cause I, mm. I wasn't eating. I didn't even know what to do. I'd held it together for a certain amount of time. Yeah. So the next morning it was really early and there was a knock on my door and I opened it and my father was standing there. Now he had never been to my home. So this had been my husband's home. I moved into it. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I was just waiting for all the meanness to come out and the attack on me. And I told you so. And um, he just started crying. He was sobbing and he was falling into my arms and I was comforting him. Mm. And men like my father do not cry. <laughs> He's a very <laughs> proud German man. And he just didn't, not, I only saw him cry one time before that. And um, he was just brokenhearted for me. And he did not say one mean thing. He was nothing but kind. He offered to help me out um, at the Rockwell Benefits Office. And I did not have the mindset, the brain to understand benefits and all that. So mm -hmm. he, he was helpful. And he didn't come to the funeral, but he would have if I wanted him to. So then I had one of my husband's daughters, the oldest one, Robin, she lived in Oregon. And when I called to tell her, I couldn't tell her. I asked her to put her husband on the phone and I told him and he told her and they were driving home back to Southern California. And it wasn't till Robin got there, she was an old soul. And here she was, a 27-year-old young woman whose father had just died. And she looked at me and said, Lisa, how are you? And we went into the kid's back bedroom because I didn't want Ryan to see me crying. That was my son. He mm -hmm. would get upset if I was crying. It really shook him up. And that's when I just totally lost it. And I realized I'd been keeping it together for like 30 hours mm. and I just couldn't anymore. And I was just screaming into pillows and she was handing me pillows to scream into. And that was another kindness I will never forget because she was a young woman and her dad died and all she could yeah. think of was me. So I, there were so many things like that that happened along the way. And um, like, for instance, uh, Robin asked me to please not cremate him because she wanted to see him. I know it's important to people. I didn't want to see him because I'd already seen him in the emergency room and I was frightened to see him in a coffin. I didn't want to see him looking not like how he was supposed to look. And, you know, and so we went over to the funeral home. I just went there to greet a few people, but my cousin had flown out and she and my mother were not afraid of viewings at all because they've been to a zillion of them. My mom's Catholic and they've gone to so many Catholic funerals. So they went in and they came out and my mother was wailing and she said, um, he looks horrible. 
and it really upset me. Why did he put, because you, you, when someone dies and you're not cremating them, you're burying them, you give them what clothes they're supposed to wear. I'd done all that stuff. And my cousin said, oh, he looks great, which so I didn't know who to believe. And my sister, Teresa, was so wonderful. She did not want to go in that room, but she said, Lisa, I'll go. Because she knew I would be only believe her. And she came out, she said, he looks fine. His hair looks a little different, but it, not in a way that will bother you. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to go in there. And it took me 20 minutes to walk 10 feet because my whole body was shaking. And I went up and said goodbye to him again. I put the pictures on his chest so he could be buried with them. But I didn't, I didn't touch him. I was afraid to. But it didn't scare me. I'd heard so many stories if, that that would be somebody's last memory, but it wasn't for me. So moving on, um, I always said, you know, after a couple of weeks, everybody goes back to their regular life as they should. They feel mm-hmm. bad for you. They're sorry, but everybody has a life. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I felt so isolated. I had no one to talk to. There was no internet back then, there no groups online or anything. And I had a friend who would call me every day and talk about mundane things with me. She was very helpful. And and it was hard though, every day at two o'clock, the mailman came and I started to just hate the mailman because when my son would hear the mail coming through the door, he'd run to the door and say, daddy's home, daddy's home. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to start crying again and say, daddy's not coming home, honey, can never come home again. Well, can we take a plane to go see daddy? Daddy was always on planes. Mm-hmm. No, honey, we can't. So eventually my son stopped doing that. And that was good because I wanted my child to be a happy little boy. But I knew what that meant. I knew he was forgetting his father and he'd probably never remember him. My daughter would never remember. She's three months old. So this very good friend that I talked to every day found a support group for me. She called local hospitals and asked for one. And I, I wasn't sure about that, but I was really, that made a big difference to me too. The first time in the support group, it was all older women over 60. Maybe one got one or two men. And I just sat there and wept the first couple of times. And then eventually, um, a lot of the ladies would always say, well, we're lonely at night. You're so lucky. You have your kids to go home to. And they, they were well-meaning. I was exhausted. <laughs> I couldn't sleep well, so tired. I was up all night with the baby. And But one time, a few months into the group, a woman came in. And she said her husband died when she was six months pregnant. And so her husband had never met her baby. And I walked out of that room that night and I said, I thought, I am lucky. I am lucky. Because my daughter doesn't remember her dad, but I have pictures of them together, you know, and that blessing of that feeling. So I learned a lot of coping mechanisms. Um, if I had it to do all over again, I would have accepted more help. I think I was a little too stoic. Mm-hmm. The grief group really helped me. Um, there's, it's so good to look for the smallest little signs that you're getting better. Mm-hmm. I used to wake up in the middle of the night and wonder how he died. I nursed the baby, put her to bed, and I'd stand where he died. And think, did he die fast? Did he die suddenly? Did he, did he call out my name? Could I have saved him if I hadn't left the house? And I was like, oh my God, I shouldn't have left the house. That's where my, all my craziness was coming in. 
And I'd always have these dreams too, where he would come to me and tell me he hadn't died, he was alive. And I would tell him, you, you died. I found you on the floor. I saw you in the, your coffin, like uh, reason with him. And finally I would believe him, he didn't die. And then I would wake up and it mm. was just awful. Yeah. But one, one day I woke up, it was exactly four and a half months. And normally you wake up and you think, oh, he died. But I thought, what should I make the kids for breakfast today? Mm. And then I thought, oh, he died. And then I jumped out of bed because I thought I'm getting better because my subconscious is accepting mm -hmm. what happened. Yeah. The other thing that helped me, um, I don't know how else to say this, but to face reality, to see my husband as a whole person um, and not put him on a pedestal. And that just, because the fact was, he started smoking when he was 15. That many smoked for 40 years. That's why he had a heart attack. But mm -hmm. I couldn't say those words at the time. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't angry at him. A lot of people go through anger um, as a phase in grieving. There was just one night when the baby was up and then my son woke up. They were both crying and screaming. It was like 3 a.m. And I was sitting on the floor and I looked up at a five by seven photo of my husband on a shelf. And it looked like he was staring at me and saying, honey, you need to, you need to have more patience with the kids. And this was all in my head, right? Yeah. But I just started screaming at the picture. Shut up, shut up, you died. You left me, you left me with all this. And it was really good for me to get that out and scream at the photo. I'm, I'm glad the neighbors didn't call the police. And I, I went to bed in the morning. I went to the photo and told them I was sorry. And then I put my kids in a stroller and walked to the local high school. And I told the principal, really nice man, a kindness I will never forget. He, they had a school newspaper and he ran an ad for me to get a teenager to come to my house every afternoon so I could get some sleep. Mm -hmm. And so finally, I was kind of at a breaking point where if I didn't get someone to help me get enough sleep, I was never going to get better. That really helped me too. Because a couple times a week or three times a week, somebody, I had a girl named Estella and she'd come like from three to five or two to five. Mm -hmm. and she would dance with my son and eventually, and, and hold the baby. And eventually I would usually go to sleep. And eventually I started to clean out some of his clothes and things too. And I, I never really got mad at him after that because even though I feel like his actions brought on a more untimely death, and uh, but seeing him as a real person and knowing that's how he chose to live his life, mm -hmm. I could never have made him any different. I was with him 11 years. Yeah. And that was how he, he wanted to live. So as, as my kids grew up, we ended up moving after a year. My mother wanted me to move right away. She wanted me to get away from yeah. the house. And get Lisa, better. before before you move in into like um, the kids growing up, I just want to go back to a few things that you talked about, just for anybody listening who's lost their husband or their wives. So I was going to ask you about the anger. So it's I love that um, to reiterate what you said. You were able to cope with that because you accepted him for who he was, whole as you know, you like, this is who he was. That's, that's his life. I have to accept that. And that helped you move on from that anger. Yes. And also I forgot to add this in with the grief group. Mm -hmm. 
some of those ladies have been in there five years and the people that were in the grief group the longest mm-hmm. glorified their husbands and said they never did one thing wrong. Mm. And I kind of, you know, subconsciously was absorbing that I didn't want to be in the grief group my whole life. I wanted to be in the living room. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, to, to be in the grief group, but I didn't want it to be a lifetime member. I wanted to get back to the living group. That's what my husband would have wanted. And so I realized that the, the people that were getting better were the ones that said, well, you know, I don't really miss his snoring because you're, you're afraid to mm-hmm. say that out loud that you don't miss something about your husband. Mm-hmm. But there were some mm-hmm. things I just didn't miss about him. And mm-hmm. you feel horrible when you have those thoughts. The guilt just kills you because you feel so bad they died. Right. But it's sort of true. And once I let some of those acceptances come in, I don't know how to explain it, but I got those things made me get better. Mm-hmm. It sort of gives you some type of freedom to move on. Exactly. I did not want to stay in that place. Like I saw so many of these women staying in. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to move on. And that was the help, again, motivating me. I probably didn't think of myself as much. I really thought about my kids, you know, and they didn't need a mother that walked around crying every single day. They needed a mother that was cheerful and sang songs with them. And I had to get it together and cry privately yeah. And I knew I had to get better or they were going to be better. And that was fulfilling my promise to my husband. Yeah. Lisa, you are a strong woman. And I just want to give you kudos for that. Your strength <laughs> is very inspiring. So I, I cut you off. You were where you were going to, you're talking about your kids now growing up. Well, because I, I you know, I ended up having a great life anyway, mm-hmm. um, a blessed life. Um, I... It, it took a long time, of course, to adjust. Moving to a new home after a year helped us. And I, I, I chime in a lot on some widows groups on Facebook, people asking advice. And I just tell them, like, don't move until you're ready. I waited till I was ready. My husband was an avid gardener on the weekends. And so I took his four favorite rose bushes with me. I had them dug up and planted at my new house. And I moved once since then, and I brought them with me, and they're, they're right outside my front door still. But I, I can have those mementos and yet still have a life. And um, a lot of part of my story is forgiveness. I was really angry at my parents, but I wanted my kids to have grandparents, and I had to make that choice. And both my kids as adults have told me, Mom, thank you for not holding a grudge against grandma and grandpa because my parents were the best grandparents anyone could ever have to my children. Sometimes I was still angry. I was angry to see my father with my son and think you didn't even like my husband. You you don't deserve this. But all I would be doing is hurting my son and my husband would have been fine with it. Yeah. So I had to forgive them. And then this is where I got even more and more spiritual about things just happening for a reason and God winks. My father opened a business with a partner and it was a restaurant. And my father was not a restaurateur in any way. He was an engineer, but he was doing this as a side thing. The partner was unscrupulous and was stealing from him. And I was about two years into being a widow. And my father said, will you come um, help me. And I'd only worked at a snack shack when I was 15. <laughs> and I worked as a hostess 
at a coffee shop and they fired me because I ate all the mints. So I had no restaurant experience. I was an engineer too. I worked on the space shuttle program and I quit to be a full-time mother. So I went to help my dad and parts of me started coming alive that I didn't realize I'd buried. I was so focused on being a mother that I forgot to be a woman. Um, I wasn't using my creativity. I, I was more existing. I wasn't looking forward so much. And all of a sudden, the spark started in me and woke me up. And every night I would go in and help my dad and my mother would watch my kids. So my kids were getting more, more family support and more love. And I was learning how to run this business that I never had any interest in. And in the end, there was a court battle between the partners and my dad said, I don't wanna run it. Do you wanna try running it? And I did. After, after two years, I ended up buying out his original investment. And so I became a restaurant owner for 27 years. And um, my father used to say, going into business with that man and opening that restaurant was the worst mistake of my life. And I used to tell him, your worst mistake is the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. And because it, it, it put me in a whole other creative realm. And another way that God or the universe intervened was, all I wanted to do growing up was to be a mother. And for 27 years, I had all these employees that I called my kids. They're like 18 or 19. They've never made a cup of coffee. They don't know how to make a salad. <laughs> they don't know how to make change. They don't know how to do anything. And so I got to mentor all these young people for all those years. So it, somehow God, the universe, gave me the ultimate job that I always wanted beyond mothering my own two kids I got to mother be a second mother to all these teenagers so I don't know I always look for the blessings and everything um I didn't stay angry very long um I really think forgiveness is important I think making amends is important if you if you have upset anybody it's so freeing for your life and I closed my restaurant voluntarily. It had nothing to do with COVID and all that. I was on the last year of my lease and I wanted to be finished. And I write short stories using Facebook as a platform and I have to get my own website. But I started writing about this and I had never written these stories because I didn't want anyone to feel sorry for me. I didn't want to, act, and to be like, I had a worse situation than anybody else because everybody has gone through, look what Sally has gone through. <laughs> So, but as I wrote them and I was 32, I would write one story every day and the response was overwhelming. Like, I never knew this happened to you. And I had a friend who called me that had known me 10 years. And he said, I just thought you were a crazy lady who walked in parades with high heels. <laughs> um, this happened to you, you know? And so I was really proud of myself that I had come so far. And also it was a way to honor all those people who did one little small thing that meant the world to me. The principal who helped me get the teenagers, my sister who walked me mm -hmm. to the casket, my, my stepdaughter who put away her own grief to help me. And there were so many more things like that. And that's when I decided, well, uh, maybe I'll try writing a book because I love writing. It was always my second passion. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm forgetting anything. Yeah, sure <laughs> I'm going to pick pick up my oh okay here's that's your book there you go okay. a kindness i will never forget you can find out on amazon and where else lisa 
Um, it's at Barnes and Noble too. Barnes and Nobles. Yeah. Very good. So and I oh, go ahead. No, no. I'm saying like some of the things I hear you say is that you have to face reality, you have to forgive, and you made amend amendments. And it takes some people longer to do that, but the space you were in allowed you, the strength that you had allowed you to do that quickly, especially as I hear you say for your children. Yes. Yes. And along the way, there were times where they would come home crying from school, like Father's Day would come around and you had to write a paper mm -hmm. on all your dad's favorite things. And my son just made the whole thing up. And when he brought it home, he was totally crying. Mm -hmm. And he, it said, your dad's favorite drink. And he wrote beer. My husband never drank beer. <laughs> like it was all wrong. But I went yeah. to see the teacher and I told her. Um, and then they changed the rule after that. You could write about a grandfather or uncle or something. So there were little oh, things good. like that. Yeah, yeah. And just one other story, um, my daughter was 14, so it had been 14 years since this happened. Mm -hmm. She was in a one-act play in her high school, and she was playing a seven-year-old girl to a single father. And he, the father leaves the room in the play, and my daughter runs after him and says, Daddy, Daddy, come back, Daddy. And I just, tears are flying down my face because I realized I'd never heard my little girl say Daddy before. Oh, you know? yeah. So sometimes it still creeps up, Yeah, you know? But I also really a firm believer in things happening for a reason. Yeah. And I think that really helps everybody through life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Lisa, that story is powerful. Thank you for being so honest and open and sharing with us. What's the takeaway today for our audience? Well, I'm going to refresh my memory just by looking at my last chapter. I put um, thoughts on grieving. Oh, take your time. Like I said before, don't, mm -hmm. don't let anybody rush you. Oh, be determined. I was determined to find anything that would help me mm -hmm. exercising groups, therapy, anything, mm -hmm. just try everything. They're not all going to help you, but something will don't give up. There's so many more things that you, you can try mm -hmm. um, to be willing and accept help. I was not very good at accepting help and I should have accepted more help. People want to help you. They just don't know what to do. Right. Um, I, I put this in here, do things you were going to do together. He and I both worked on the space shuttle program. We always wanted to take our kids to see a shuttle launch. So I, I did that. It was a very, my kids were eight and 10 and it was an emotional experience and they didn't remember their dad. But I had this locket with this picture and I was wearing it and I, I just felt like his presence was there as the shuttle went off. So I think some of those things are important. And I put notice the kindnesses, celebrate the joy. I celebrated the smallest amounts of joy. Mm -hmm. The smallest things, um, my daughter walking was those kind of things were bittersweet because usually you'd share that with your spouse. And um, I used to say this too, there's a very special club when you have a baby, you and your, your child's father think you have the best baby that ever lived. Yeah. You just don't care what anybody else says about their baby. You know, you have the best one. Yeah. And when he died, I didn't have my counterpart anymore. There was no one to turn to and say, look, he did this, she did that. Yeah. But my parents became that for me. They mm. looked at my kids as with as much love as my husband did. So I could really see the power and what that forgiveness did um, and what it gave to my kids and to me. So it's like, don't give up and be willing. And, and if you make the smallest thing, like if your second thought is, oh, he died, that's progress. Yeah. Yeah. To hold on to those things. Thank you, Lisa. And, you know, friends, I say it's never too late to start living resiliently. And what I'm learning from Lisa today is that you celebrate daily. 
you celebrate the little things, you face reality, and you forgive. If Lisa hadn't forgiven her parents, then her kids wouldn't have had that opportunity to know them and have this wonderful relationship with them. So Lisa, thank you so much for being in our show. I want to thank Sticky Paw Studio, and um, I want to thank our audience for watching us. You can watch us now on Spotify. I'm so excited. <laughs> if you fun. like our show, rate, review, and share with your friends. Thank you, Sally. Thank <laughs> you.